Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. It's good to be with you. This is Matt Lynch. This episode is devoted to your questions that you sent in via our Twitter feed at OnScript Podcast. The episode ran a tad long, so I'll be quick here. Three things uh, before we begin that I just want to make sure we cover. First of all, I've managed to record this on my computer mic because I had driver problems. So the quality on my recording is not very good. Uh, And if it sounds like I'm speaking from a well, that's why. Uh, Second of all, during the episode, Drew and I decided on a whim to Skype in Chris Tilling to answer a few New Testament questions. And uh, it was totally spontaneous, unplanned. We didn't um, we didn't rehearse it, so it's a bit choppy. And Chris Tilling happened to be grilling while we were uh, recording. So I snapped a few photos on Skype, and we're going to put some of those on the podcast site if you want to see them, on script.study. There's a, a point in our conversation with Chris where Chris mentions Mark Nanos in the context of discussing Paul within Judaism, and he meant to say Daniel Boyarin. So he emailed me to make that correction, and we'll let him slide on that because he was busy grilling at the time and not able to give the interview his full attention. Uh, third, don't forget to email a brief word to us about a book in biblical studies that was paradigm shifting for you. Uh, let us know what that book is and, and why, uh, why you feel it was important for you, uh, either in a brief audio recording or just a written email to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, on to the episode. Welcome to OnScript's listener Q&A episode. I'm Matt Lynch here with Drew Johnson, who is currently in Israel. Drew, what are you up to in Israel? Uh, I was here for a conference down in Jerusalem, and my family joined me, and so now we're um, taking a few days to go see the sites up north of Israel. So this is our listener episode where we've had listeners sending questions, and we're going to talk through some of those. Uh, but I thought, well, we thought it'd be good to just reflect a little bit on OnScript itself and what's been happening with it. So Drew, you've been with OnScript for a couple of months now. Uh, do you have any sort of initial reflections on your experience? Um, well, yes, yeah, certainly the f- first reflection would be, this is a whole lot more work than it looks like on the other side. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm kind of amazed that you two alone have been pulling together all of these. And it's it's actually, it's not a ton of work besides the reading that I enjoy doing anyways, but you're, you're constantly contacting people. And yeah. now I look at book catalogs differently. You know, when the catalogs come from the various publishers, I'm, okay, what would what would make a good interview? Mm. Uh, what would be a good book to, to bring out uh, and get out there? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I feel like I've kind of flipped over into this mode of constantly thinking about it. Uh, and so for <laughs> me, that feels like work. Maybe for you, this doesn't, but... Um, I feel like I appreciate you guys even more now that I'm on this side. Yeah. Well, it, it's been fun having you come on. It is a lot of work behind the scenes. I think, but it because it's sort of exciting and developing, uh, it doesn't it doesn't feel too heavy. Uh, but I think um, the, the there is a lot of sort of behind the scenes work that goes into an episode, and listeners aren't always aware of that unless you happen to run a podcast yourself. Uh, but just contact, right. yeah, the contacting people, 
uploading episodes and, and the website maintenance and then we've got a different site that hosts it and all the technology, all this stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of running running around behind the scenes. Uh, it's, but it's fun. It's a, it's a lot and, of and I, little things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like right now, we're working on our logo. And probably yeah. by the time this is out, we'll have a different logo. And we've had a, a listener who kindly offered to help us out with, with our graphics, which uh, is a kind way of probably recognizing that, hey, I bet one of you designed this yourself, like on Microsoft <laughs> Word. <laughs> and, Image. Yeah. 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 Which, you know, I used or GIMP. Paint. Which That's is what a, it was. A, yeah. Which is a free design thing uh, to design our logo. But I never quite liked the blue. You know, it's, it was getting there. But I, th I think we've got a much better one coming out. So I, I really like what uh, this guy has done. I think it yeah. looks pretty slick. Yeah, I think I think we're evolving into the into a world where people, you know, take us slightly more seriously. <laughs> we're sophisticated now. I know, I know, and and I think we're gonna, you know, maybe have uh, better music too one day. Who knows? Um, so I, I had I wrote down a couple of reflections, just from in thinking. So we've been at this. Matt and I have been at this a year and a half now. Uh, slightly longer than a year and a half and didn't really know what to expect and we, but we did know that we wanted to bring a, a sort of wide range of insights from the world of biblical scholarship which I, I think as I'm sure you'd agree Drew it's, it's a fascinating but sprawling world mm. and and to have guides through that world from a particular perspective because you know we're we're all coming from a, a sort of broadly evangelical perspective mm -hmm. but we want to engage with a with a much wider uh, array of scholars so so just uh, getting to connect with with all those different people and then and then bringing those insights and those conversations to listeners in a way that's hopefully more accessible and then um, and then also just just trying to model a way of engaging in scholarship that's hospitable even when we disagree with stuff and I, and I bet well, who knows? Like, I don't know how much listeners can always tell when we don't agree with something. Hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but, I, but I think also, but showing that an evangelical engagement with scholarship doesn't mean defensive, and yeah. and it doesn't mean not engaging with critical insights, and it doesn't mean that we don't even take on board some of those perspectives. Uh, so and it's been a, just a fun adventure too, getting to connect with our heroes and and. and increasingly connect with more listeners who are getting mm. involved with what we're doing and, and even saying, Hey, can I, can I help you guys out in some way? So that's been, that's been really cool. Uh, you know, it's been really, uh, as well, I'm kind of riding under coattails here, but I was at a conference, uh, two weeks ago in, in St. Andrews, Scotland, mm -hmm. the logos conference. And there was someone there who I thought presented a really, you know, um, good view of, of metaphor, or I should say I actually probably would critically engage her view, but I mm -hmm. thought she presented it especially well. And uh, people said, oh yeah, her book is really good. You ought to talk to her. Mm -hmm. And so I approached her and said, hey, you know, I'm doing this thing called OnScript. And she immediately said, oh, I love OnScript. I've listened <laughs> to every episode, you know? Yeah. Um, and I thought, okay, here's somebody who is a, uh, someone who's not just a junior scholar, but someone who's actually doing uh, real scholarship right now who's listening yeah. to these episodes uh, and excited about the prospect of being on here. So we'll, that, that will happen soon, hopefully here. But um, to me, that's just a different level uh, of engagement yeah. than coming up to somebody and saying, oh, you know, I read your book. I liked it. 
And then you kind of both stare at the ground and go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, to avoid those the, awkward the, conversations. I, yeah, you the know, mutual I think, self-abasement that we get into. So Yeah, I, I, you know, speaking of awkwardness, I think the most awkward conversations I had with scholars, and, and let's be honest, like there are a lot of them because scholars are often mm. very awkward. Um, so true. When, when I was applying for doctoral programs, someone said to me, Oh, you should go to SBL and try to try to talk with the scholars of the schools to which you're going to apply, and and of course, so so I took I took them up on this advice, and I go up to these people, like Carol Newsom at Emory, where I applied, and say, "Hey, I'm going to be applying," and then you have this really <laughs> awkward conversation at a reception. What's she where- supposed to say? <laughs> Uh, exactly, and, and we're at a re- yeah. You're at these school receptions where they want to catch up with all their old colleagues and his former students and all this stuff. And uh, I, I really don't recommend that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I um, that's right up there with. I'm sure you've had this as well. But when people want you to sign their book, it's only happened a couple of times. But I, I, I literally have no idea what to do in those moments. Mm. Um, and so my daughter, uh, my 13 year old daughter, has given me a few quotes that I should. Right, um, you know, just to have something to put in there. So one of them was, uh, "You are the wind beneath my wings." <laughs> Do you really Which, write that in there? I've I've done it twice. So. <laughs> oh, that's great! Yeah, you know, get, just give them everything they want and more. Like I, I don't even I don't even understand why somebody I, I'm like this is going to devalue the book if I sign it. I'm worried for them, you know. So well, I I can say, I've. Except for like my revised dissertation, which is a book, uh, and and except for signing that for my family, I've never <laughs> had anyone ask me to sign a book. Uh, and, to be uh, fair, this has only happened a few times, and yeah. and that's why it's probably so. You you notice senior yeah. scholars they're they're kind of used to dealing with this, but um, I think I will yeah. have done well in life if I have no yeah. more invitations ever to yeah. sign a book. So yeah, I think previous to that, the last thing I was asked to sign, you because know, someone wanted my signature. Uh, apart from just for some legal reason, was uh, you know signing casts in, in junior high when someone broke their arm. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably about it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Lawyers so, and cast, man, they're the only ones who care. Yeah. Should we, should we move to some of our listener questions? I'm afraid to, but yes. Yeah, we're we're gonna do question and and answer, and we Drew and I are gonna give definitive answers on on all the questions. So you can you can you can scrap going to Wikipedia. It's you know it's a funny phenomenon. Like you could just Google these questions, but <laughs> but, <laughs> but but for some reason. To be fair, yeah. I feel like I need to clarify. I really thought Matt B. Matt Bates was going to be on this call, so I, I in my mind I punted on all the yeah. New Testament stuff. So well, not all of know, it, but many of them. You know, Matt's not on this episode, so we could probably say it. Like, I mean, who needs him? <laughs> <laughs> Right? He is superfluous at this moment. I just yeah. now realized it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I hope he doesn't hear that. I hope he doesn't listen to this episode. But I'm, I'm, um, I've heard that he doesn't listen to this podcast, so we're good to yeah, go. Yeah. All right. So, so here's the first one, Drew. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put this one to you. <laughs> uh, we, uh, Scott Hughes would love to get your take on NT rights the day the revolution began. Drew, could you give a uh, a summary of the book's primary uh, thesis and then your studied opinion? 
Um, yeah, so I think the basic thesis of the book is uh, I have never read it, uh, and so I have no idea. Um, I know much of N.T. Wright's work, uh, so in some ways, you know, when you've read enough of N.T. Wright, uh, or Tom as they call him in the UK, you feel like you could almost give an answer on his behalf, because uh, you kind of, he's like the Tao, you kind of get in his way, and he, he guides you, you know? Um, I, I do have a definitive answer I can give. You know, I'm going to be working at an institute with Tom Wright uh, next year in St. Andrews. Uh, and so I will pull him aside at some point and go, hey, Tom, mm-hmm. can you can you just, I don't have time to read your book. Can you just give me the rundown yeah. on the day the revolution began? And yeah. uh, I will record all 37 seconds of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Speaking of aw- awkward scholarly conversations, and yeah. I will um, I will bring that back to Scott Hughes mm-hmm. for his listening pleasure. Yeah. Okay. That's good. And maybe you could um, get a signed copy from him um, and, and ask him to write you a, a, a nice little message. Like you are the wind and, ooh, beneath my wings. You know, you know what you could do then? If you don't plan to read it, resell it on Amazon and sell it as a signed copy for like 10 times its value. You're, you're absolutely brilliant. That's uh, okay. why you make the big bucks on this thing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so here's my opinion. I have not read the book either, but I can say I've seen it on the shelf. And, and also Lucy Pepiot, who's my boss at WTC, where I work in the UK, uh, she, she loved the book. She read it, and she asked me to buy it for our libraries. Uh, we have, we're, we're a sort of decentered hub-based model, so we actually have uh, 11 different hub libraries. So all 11 oh. of our hubs now have the book. So it comes recommended by Lucy. I really trust Lucy in her opinion, so... I also met Lucy at Logos Conference oh, yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she seems fantastic. Yeah, and she is. Just on that encounter alone, I would I would read anything she told me to. Yeah, I know. She she's an amazing person to work for. So I I hope to have her on the podcast later, because she wrote a really good book on women and worship at Corinth, where mm, so it's it's yeah. especially on First Corinthians eleven, you know, women head coverings, all that stuff, which. Okay, so here's one little insight from the book that I just love to share. So, it, you know that phrase where, where Paul's like, isn't isn't a woman's hair her glory and all that stuff? Like, So there's this whole thing about women, long hair, men mm-hmm. shouldn't have long hair. Well, Paul had taken a Nazarite vow when he mm. went to Corinth 18 months prior. And so he probably had long hair hmm. when he was in Corinth. So is I just, it based on Acts 21, is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, interesting. So, well, I don't know the chapter in Acts, but I assume. It's Acts 21, oh. he takes a Nazarite vow. Yeah, okay. To prove to the Jerusalemites that yeah. he was not teaching the abrogation of the Torah. Yeah, which gets at another one of our questions later. Okay. Yes. Okay, so l- let's move on to Garrett Best's question. What's, okay, this is another one from Matt Bates, so I'm just going to channel him. And what's your take on the current status of the new perspective on Paul versus Paul within Judaism? So I, you know, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> I not not current status. I I, yeah. I don't know. I really am not in touch with Pauline studies at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, I ha- I I know lots of. Uh, periphery stuff, and um, I have people I go to when I have such questions that I would um, drag into the ring and ask them this. So, hey, should, we Skype, wanna, should I, we Skype a friend? We, if we could bring in Chris Tilling at this moment, we would have a stellar answer on our hands. Okay, 
Let's try to add him in. Hmm. Yeah. He's who I would ask. I mean, among other people, uh, he would certainly be one I would go to. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, I'm going to add him to the group call right now. I'll see if I can get him in calling Chris Tilling. You think he's just like sitting around at the computer? Well, you know, he's by his computer a lot. Like he, that guy. Hey, Chris. Hey, hi, how are you doing? Hey, good. How are you? <laughs> this is this is Matt. This is Matt Lynch with Drew Johnson. Nice to see you guys. Yeah. Hey. What are you at the oh my goodness. Oh, you're you doing a barbecue. Literally. Oh, that is He's so cool. Outside. Hey, I, I'm, um, I'm busy we're reading this new book and oh, sorry. And uh, so they, they. Oh, you can't see it. There, there you go. There's barbecue. And I've got to tell you, oh. sorry, you caught me. So uh, you got to put up with this. But oh, that's fantastic. That looks amazing. Look at that. Oh, come on. That is phenomenal. That's a lot of, that's a has, lot of sausage. He, he's, yeah, so just for our listeners, he's he's got about a, a 10 foot long sausage curled up on his barbecue right now. <laughs> we have like broken some kind of fourth wall here with this call. I don't know what happened. I, I know. So, uh, Chris, real quick, I have a qu- we have a question for you. We're, we're recording a listener Q&A right now. Oh. And and we have we have a, a quick question. Yeah. Uh could you give your take on the current status of the new perspective on Paul versus Paul within Judaism? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> Let the listener know he is actively working the grill. Like he, he, is not, he has not set things aside. He is, he is working. It's a big sausage, so hang on a minute. Yeah. Um, right. The current status. Well... The Paul within Judaism movement is is flourishing. It's becoming flavor of the month. Uh-huh. It's um, uh, similar in many ways to the new perspective, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say is, to a certain extent, uh, losing its hold. Uh-huh. Uh, obviously, the two are related because um, the new perspective on Paul in many ways wanted to understand Jesus in the light of Second Temple Judaism, but only in in light of one particular aspect, namely a reconsideration of um, uh, the way in which Jews related to God through the law. Uh-huh. You know, this was the big pushback, covenantal nomism, pushing back on, um, um, oh, hang on, sorry, pushing back on, um, uh, the um, the legalistic understanding of of Jewish nomism. Yeah, and focused uh, in uh, Romans and Galatians, right? That's right. Yeah, uh, but the the reading Paul within uh, or as an instance of Judaism is broader than that. It might mm-hmm. include some of these concerns, but it also attempts to read other aspects of Paul's theology in light of Second Temple Jewish concerns, such as his um, so um, a good example of this would be um, Mark Nanos, uh, who who tries to understand the distinction of Jesus from God, as well as the correlation between Jesus as God in Paul's letters in light of uh, the Enochic son of man, Daniel and such like. So there you see a, a much more vigorous grounding of Pauline theology and axiomatic Pauline themes in the literature of Second Temple Judaism, um, whereas, second, whereas the new perspective on Paul wasn't so much interested in all of those particular issues. And of course, they are becoming more interested in the representatives. But if we're talking about movements, and that would be my 
my main distinction um, between yeah. the two. And um, and the latter, the, the call within Judaism is becoming, as I say, much, much more popular now. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have any, um, do you have any sort of uh, critiques of the Paul within Judaism movement? I mean, is it overplaying Paul's adherence to Jewish, uh, to, to the, to the law in particular, or what would you say? Um, my, my main criticism with the movement as a whole involves what I call its hermeneutical front loading. Um, it will, uh, what I mean by that is that it will, <coughs> hang on, that's really smoke is going everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I mean by that is it, it constructs certain claims about the nature of Second Temple Judaism in a fair amount of detail, and then goes to Paul's letters in order to ratify those concerns. And uh, I find that to be the wrong way around. What this often does is it decenters, ironically, it decenters Paul's letters um, from an analysis of Pauline theology. Uh, and Paul's letters then tend to be treated in more of a piecemeal fashion, uh, in my view, um, by those the representatives of those scholars, rather than attempting to uh, elucidate the coherent whole of hmm. Pauline theology hmm. first, and then retrospectively, to a certain extent, going back and, and trying to understand Paul in light of Second Temple Judaism, of which he is an instance. Yeah. A good example of this, I mean, you could say, is Mark Nanos, the one I've just spoken about. His, his understanding of Christology makes a good deal of sense if we only had a few verses from Paul's letters. Uh, but we have a lot more than that, and that problematizes his approach rather a lot. Yeah, uh, that's good. That's really helpful. And and uh, sorry, one more quick question: Have you read N.T. Wright's "The Day the Revolution Began"? No, but <laughs> um, uh, um, on which formed the the, uh, the spine of the book, if you like. Okay. All right. Why do you ask? Well, that, that was another listener question. So, so Drew and I are, are are struggling here with some of the New Testament questions, uh, even though we've read read the New Testament, and because yeah, 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 we do beginning and, and, to end. Yeah, we've it, it's it's helpful for shedding light on the Old Testament, and I haven't read the Old Testament. Okay, all right. Well, yeah, and Matt Bates couldn't make this this listener Q and A call, so so we're we're bringing in Chris Tilling, and we just thought, hey, who would we want to talk to? Let's let's call Chris. So and this is actually live. You're... It's well, yeah, we're yes. recording. <laughs> yeah, and you are. I I wish the uh, listeners could see him right now. He, I mean, yeah. he is actively barbecuing. He's just sitting yeah. in his backyard. Yeah. Answered his phone, and here we yeah. got him. Well, I took a couple <coughs> pictures on Skype. Hey, uh, could okay. you? I want to show you again. Look at this. This is this is stunning. Oh, that oh, that is amazing. Beautiful. Fantastic. You, you ought to be proud of that. All right, well, we'll let you get back to your barbecue. Thank you, mate. Um, lovely yeah. to hear from you. Yeah, you too. God bless you. Bye. See you around, Chris. Okay, I think I hung wow. up on him. All right, that, that, was, uh, th- that was good. Th- that was podcast liquid gold. Yeah, it was. You know, I snapped a photo of the sausage, so please uh, okay. have a look on our website, onscript.study, to get a look at the sausage that Chris is uh, grilling. Okay, let's keep moving through the questions. Um, I, we got a question from Neil... Critchley, Drew, is your God is God your imaginary friend? 
Now, I, I actually had an imaginary friend growing up. Like, I was one of those people that legitimately had yeah. an imaginary friend. Yep. Um, I can't remember his name. I think I had several names for him. But uh, no, God is not my imaginary friend. Uh, well, I guess you could say in some kind of like empiricism, uh, empiricist way, if you mean the imagination is the thing that kind of fires all my understanding of the world, uh, yes. If you mean it in a sense of fictional and made up, uh, no. Um, and my short answer is um, to that, not only no is he not my imaginary friend, it's uh, because I, you know, I actively see him work in the world. So I, I would say in myself, which wouldn't count if it were just me, I, I would think that I'm fooling myself. Yeah. But I see him working in similar ways and others, other people, uh, and that's actually what convinces me that he's not just my imaginary friend. Yeah. And I, I put as my answer, I imagine not. So. <laughs> All right. Witty. Uh, yes. So have you heard of mirror reading before? Uh, I, w- I will admit that I Googled that as soon as I yeah. saw that question. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I had not heard it called that. I knew what it was, but I just never heard it called that before. So Okay. So so mirror reading. I had to look it up too. I hadn't heard of that. So uh, uh Twitter account called Mira Scriptura. So obviously this person is invested in this approach. What are your thoughts on mirror reading? And so mirror reading, according to the internet, is the idea that the Bible is always responding to some specific cultural situation and we should interpret it in that light. So with Paul, there was some lady in that church who just wore her hair too darn short. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, that's right. and that's what he was responding to, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, there's something to the fact that in Paul's letters especially, it seemed like from the stuff I looked up, that's where mm. people went, that you can, in some instances, reconstruct, or I don't, I don't even want to say reconstruct, but just you see indications in the text that there is a given situation happening. Uh, there's, there's something that Paul is responding to, and it helps to think about that. So, so I, I don't see that as, as really a, a sort of separate approach from anything that you would do when you read a text. But I guess, I guess the idea that the Bible's always responding directly to a given cultural, to some specific circumstance, can probably get you in dicey territory. And when we read Paul's letters, that there's often things he's responding to, and he, he writes he refers to previous letters he wrote and, and he talks about people in the church, often people that are causing trouble, like hand so-and-so over to Satan, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So uh, he's not th- afraid to pull the trigger on that one, right? N- no, he isn't. But, but I think probably where it gets a little dicey is when you start reading all the Bible in, in response to some specific cultural cir- circumstance, as if the Bible is directly always responding to something. Yeah. And as of a history of response to circumstance, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's probably a spectrum. Uh, you know, in the Galatian situation, there were there were. I think people are pretty agreed. There were there was this group called I don't know if you want to call them Judaizers, but basically people trying to push the law as as like the next step in your spiritual mm-hmm. journey after uh, Christ. So. That's that's pretty much agreed upon. But but then you get you know one of the ones I thought of in the Old Testament that always gets played, and I think it's it's really mistaken and overdone is this idea that behind the writings of the Old Testament was this massive conflict between priests and Levites. 
Mm-hmm. Do you ever hear that yeah. one? You, I'm yeah, sure and you then do. and then taking that down to the level also of um, the laws themselves, right? That mm-hmm. that a particular law is a response to a particular um, event, which in some cases could very well be the case. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. um, at this at this conference we were talking about this issue of falsifiability a lot with mm-hmm. kind of uh, critical method, um, and I and I sh- I struggle with some of these instances to say okay. You, uh, if we think that this is what's going on, how would we know that we're wrong? Not how do we know we're right? Mm-hmm. How would mm-hmm. we know if we're wrong about this? Which I think is just as an important as a question for our method. And that concerns me a little bit in some of these things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think another example is, where I think it kind of gets interesting is Genesis 1. Is this responding to other creation narratives? Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. But I think we can't stop there. We have to, if you're going to talk about cultural engagement, is that a direct polemical response to the Enuma Elish epic? Right. Or is it maybe borrowing some language and themes from that and playing with them in new ways? Is it subverting it? You know, so so there's a spectrum. Or is of, it a response to um, uh, the Egyptian narratives? Right? Yeah, exactly. This is another one that somebody's yep. posited recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, and if you're saying, if you're giving a creation narrative, of course it's engaging mm-hmm. uh, other creation narratives. So the question is to what extent, how, how savvy are they being, how much are they kind of flipping the script? How much are they just kind of throwing the old script out and saying, no, 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 listen to this whole new story. Yeah. It's very difficult uh, to tell. I mean, I, I think it's, it's easy to put the, the Genesis one through 11. I've written a, a layperson's commentary on this. So I've been thinking about it a lot in the last year or two. It's easy to put it in, context of those stories it's a little mm-hmm. more difficult to say that it's directly attacking you know yeah. the egyptian pantheon uh or uh directly attacking uh the 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 the, uh, the battle between ao and uh, tiamat right so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where i think i i'm a little uncomfortable with the term mirror because mm-hmm. it, it implies some kind of direct opposite response yeah and 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 also that those narratives are kind of setting the agenda. And so so I would probably not use that kind of language, but use a, a more nuanced approach to thinking about cultural engagement that mm-hmm. that that allows for a, a wide range of of possible responses. And yeah, and I, I, and I think you just have to hold a lot of these things with an open hand. So, you know, when you my favorite example is you know exodus one as soon as you have a baby in trouble from someone who thinks they're going to be a usurper going into a a a reed basket with pitch and tar and put into the nile river like it's difficult to think that anybody who has ever touched egyptian theology would not think okay this is this is the horus epic uh, the uh, what they call the infant exposure motif the details are too creepy or with um Utna Pishtim and Gilgamesh, right? The the details are just too close. So I think we have to think of these texts as engaging uh, these stories somehow. It's it's just, I'm not quite sure that there's a clear method for saying it's a one-to-one reaction. Mm. Like you said, the the mirror, I think, is what threw me off as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Corby Amos asked, we've got one more Paul question. We should have asked this uh, of Chris when Um, he was on. Okay, what... What did Paul mean when he said he was blameless before the law? What Christian caricatures of the law need to die? So that's actually two questions. 
So blameless, what does that mean? He's blameless before the law. I think he kept all the laws of the Torah. Like he saw himself as a Torah-abiding uh, Jewish. Yeah, I, I think also I would, I, I, you know, the, uh, obviously I'm going to say something trite. The context of the speech act, right, uh, kind of mm, determines yeah. how you determine it. Uh, and I think this phrase, correct me if I'm wrong, but this comes up in, in the context of where he's justifying, hey, I'm a Jew of Jews, I'm a Hebrew of yeah. Hebrews, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I don't think he's trying to make some itemized answer of here are the 613 laws that, you know, is often, often stated in Jewish tradition. Uh, and I've kept all 613 down the line. Um, but I think he's trying to say, hey, I'm, I'm one of you guys. I, I think about the world this way. I've been in, I've, my, my life has been formed and shaped by keeping of Torah. So now let's talk as brothers uh, rather than as me, some crazy outsider trying to uh, overthrow your system. Yeah. And then what Christian caricatures of the law need to die? I think there's a, I had a couple. What do you, what do you think, Drew? Do you have any? Uh, I'll hear yours first and see if they're the same as, because I have a couple too. So Okay. So one of the ones that comes up a lot is, I actually wrote down seven. I'll try to get through them quickly. <laughs> okay. All right. The, the law is basically a list of do's and don'ts. Yeah, so that's I my think, number I think one. That, yep. So I think that comes from the idea that the Ten Commandments, which do include uh, you shall not uh, do such and such. Uh, but the law is, is a much wider network of uh, case laws and ritual law and prohibitions and admonitions. And you know, there, there's just, it's too complex to reduce it down to that. All right. Well, second also, one. It, hold, yeah. I, on that point, and this may touch some of the other points, there, there's also these kind of general universalizing laws that need concrete output, which you're calling case law. But even, you know, I point out to my students, uh, you shall not kill, right? Or y'all shall not kill. Uh, yeah, that's right. Th- 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 those rules came down in the hands of a murderer um, given by a God who had just murdered uh, many children in Egypt. And, and when he got to the bottom of the hill, he strapped on swords with the Levites, or the Levites strapped on swords, and they went through and murdered um, 3,000 of their countrymen. So you have to say, okay, well, what does it mean not to kill, right? There's, um, there's, there's got to be something more than merely the act of taking somebody else's life. Um, and so... If, if that's the setup for the construction of, of how we are to think about God's instruction, it just doesn't do to like to throw it in a, a uh, don't, don't do this, don't uh, do this and don't do that. It just, mm. the, it's a completely perpendicular construct. Hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, the word there is also, you shall not murder specifically. Right. And, and so that, that's a, that was understood to be a certain kind of taking of life that wouldn't include the the boys in Egypt, you know, right, so right. That but was it would not, that was not perceived to be murder. Yeah, it would include Moses and the taskmaster, but not mm-hmm, uh, yeah. the, the the just uh, killing of the, of the children in Egypt. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Second one is the law was categorically a burden. Uh, mm. There there are plenty of psalms that talk about the law being a source of delight. And so you can, the standard three are Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. They're good, good to go to Psalms for thinking about that. And they talk uh, extensively about how beautiful and wonderful the law was. In fact, Psalm 119, there's, there's been a study that, that looks at the ways that the writer talks about the law being similar to the ways other writers talk about God Mm. and like raising your hand to Torah, uh, adoring Torah. So, so the, the, the writer is talking about relating to God through relating to the law. 
So this, yeah. the, the law was a very intimate encounter that people had with God himself. So, so it's, I think that goes well beyond the notion that it's a burden. Psalm 1, it's the delight is in the Torah, and he, mm-hmm. he mumbles through it day and night. Um, also, uh, I, I have an interview, I don't know if it'll air before or after this, but uh, with Miriam Brand, who's going to talk about Second, uh, uh, Second Ju- Temple Judaism texts that talk about the, the, the Torah as being the way to be cured of your sin. Uh, the Torah itself becomes kind of a, a solvent uh, for our sinful inclination, not just sin itself, I should say. Yeah, and so I, I think... So then people are like, well, what do you do with, you know, Paul's negative view on the law in some circumstances? And I think one of the things is you have to take a narrative approach and look mm-hmm. at the, the law as covenant. When you think about it as covenant relationship, the covenant entail blessings and curses. And when Israel wandered from God and fell into idolatry, immorality, and uh, injustice, then the law became a curse because it enacted the covenant curses against them. And so then their relationship with the law became conflictual because of their own disobedience. And so, so you can't, you have to talk about where you're at in the story from a broad perspective, mm-hmm. when you're thinking about Israel's relationship with the law, you can't just take a flat approach and say it was always burdensome because you could go to obvious texts like the classic example of putting a fence around the top of your roof so that right. people don't fall off. Right. Yeah, it, it might housing be housing code. Yeah, housing code. So it might be a burden to put that up for the owner. You might see it as oh, what a pain I have to do this, but it's good. It preserves life. It protects it protects people. Okay, amen third one. Amen. Yeah. So third one, the law is harshly retributive. So there's the uh, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, etc. So that set of laws in Exodus is, I think, widely seen as setting an upper limit on on uh, responding to certain infractions. So the idea is that you take a tooth for a tooth and not an arm, hand, foot, and tooth for a tooth. You know, so, so, so setting a limit on what you could punish someone for doing something. And often, with the exception of taking a life, there were opportunities for, uh, for what's, a, what's a term like substitutions? So, yeah, re- yeah pay- redemption through substitution, right? Yeah, yeah. So you could, you could pay instead of taking the guy's tooth, because if you're the one who lost your tooth or you broke your hand to someone else, what good is it you, to you for them to lose their hand? Maybe you want money so that you can pay for your inability to work. Yeah. Okay. I, I think there's a, an, an, another reading of that too. Uh, in the Exodus account of um, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, if you consider that the general statement, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and so what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the very next statements are, if you strike your servant in the eye, you shall right. let him loose. If you yeah. strike your servant and so that his tooth comes out. So I don't think it's happenstance that your two concrete instances yeah. are an eye and a tooth. Uh, and, and again, it's basically saying you can't do whatever you want with your servant. You can't treat them that way. And if you do, you lose their work for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in that instance, you can see that there was a, a a different response. So the owner's tooth was not knocked out in response, mm-hmm. but he was let go, So, which is better for that slave in right. that instance. Right. Okay. Fourth one is that law, equal, law keeping equals legalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one kind of Amen. speaks herself, but yep. but I think I think the idea that a desire for and and pursuit of keeping God's law does not mean you're legalistic, 
legalism is when you define your relationship with God purely in terms of law keeping. And I think, I think that's different. If you just shift the script a little bit to say that keeping Torah is actually shaping you into a kind of people, not just a kind of person, but a kind of people. Yeah. Um, the, the kind of people you're supposed to be, then it, I don't think it can ever reduce to legalism. Mm-hmm. Okay, fifth one. God didn't really want law keeping. He wanted the heart. <laughs> okay. So, Preach it, brother. The, yeah, so the favorite, favorite verse for this one is Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Okay, so Drew, I'd be curious, if someone brings that verse to you and says, see, God didn't really want the whole sacrificial system, all the all this killing of animals, what he wanted was acknowledgement of God and mercy. And let's call that the heart. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, actually, you have a, there's, in Jewish tradition, you have the medievals, Maimonides is going to make a very similar argument that, that God was always trying to move them away from the blood of sacrifice to the, the world of thought and prayer. Um, so that's not just a modern evangelical move, um, although there's a particularly heinous version of it. I, I would say uh, it's, a, it's a both and, right? Uh, that uh, Keeping the sacrifices is uh, showing God your heart, right? That, uh, that there's not, same thing with Micah. What, is, what does he require of you? Because the question is, what shall I bring uh, before God, right? Uh, before his holy hill. And should I bring him all these sacrifices? And it says, well, you know, you know what man, God requires of you, right? Uh, justice, loving justice, walking humbly, right? Uh, and uh, so people say, okay, so you don't need to do sacrifice. No, it's, it's, saying, it's saying doing the sacrifices entails all of those things. So you can't bring a sacrifice if you haven't loved the immigrant in your mix or the poor or you haven't, or you haven't built the parapet around your roof to protect people from falling off it. You're simply, that, that exposes your heart. Um, and whether you're greedy and hoard, hoard your grain to yourself and you don't bring some to give to the priest and to give back to God and thankfulness, thank you for punctuating that with a pen drop. Uh, <laughs> a pen drop, not a pin drop. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, yeah, I, I think these are all, in, all inclusive. And I, and I think uh, you, you only have to pull out certain phrases from text in order to make that case that it's about the heart and not about uh, our actions in the world. Yeah, and I think I think those, especially eighth century prophetic critiques of the sacrificial system were not critiques oh, yeah. of the system as such, but rather yeah. a critique of the the people's tendency to insist on continuing in the sacrificial system while they're practicing injustice. And God says, "Hey, you know what? I don't want your prayers and your sacrifice when your hands are covered in the blood of the poor. Right, right. So clean up that stuff." as your purification for worship and then come talk to me. Right. So, so I, th- I think it's, it wasn't even so much God saying, Hey, your intentions aren't right. Your, you know, your attitudes are the wrong place. All these, all these uh, heart kind of issues. If you re- you know, if constructed a certain way, but he's saying clean up how you treat other people, you know, it's a, it's a justice issue. This isn't an old Testament issue either. I mean, I, no. I, the same thing, you know, Jesus didn't leave us with, um, a great set of thoughts to think through. He left us with bodily practices and, and a reenactment of a sacri- a memorial meal that is part yeah. of a sacrificial system. Um, and I, you know, it's like saying, God just wants my heart. He doesn't care if I take communion with a church. It's like, nope, he wants both. Yeah, yeah. But when you take communion and you eat all the good food before the poor people can get there because they've been working yes. all day, then I don't want your communion. 
Yep. <laughs> so it stinks. So, yeah. You cows of Bashan. Yeah, exactly. All right. Sixth one. Uh, that the law equals Old Testament and grace equals New Testament. Oh, right, that's that's my other sorry. that's my other caricature. <laughs> I'm trying not that to throw to... up. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think I mean all you have to do is look at the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is upping the ante on the law in many circumstances, and it's not a law in a strict sense of a code of conduct per, or, or a uh, what well, kind of is a code of conduct, but it, it it's not a a law for political people because that his followers were not going to be thought of in political terms, but it's clearly meant to be modeled on the sermon on the giving of the law in the old Testament on Mm -hmm. Mount Sinai. So there's clearly law in the old, in the new Testament and there's clearly grace in the old Testament. The, the, the law begins with God saying, look, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So I'm asking you to serve me. There's that sort of, uh, grace that precedes the giving of the law. Yeah, and I, and I will point out too that you know these really easy moves that I think you can make to open people's eyes to say you know the famous sayings there do not mur- you know I say to you whoever um, says raka or good for nothing of his brother I'm going to actually be interviewing Jonathan Pennington about his new book on uh, flourishing in the Sermon on the Mount oh, yeah. uh, up, upcoming but. Um, you know, that love your neighbor as yourself and do not hate your brother in your heart. Those are both quotes from Leviticus, from the Torah. Um, <laughs> these are not new Christian ethics. Uh, that's, and in many ways, he's returning them to a proper contextual understanding of the Torah um, and then weeding out some misunderstandings as well. So I, I think it's just impossible uh, to read grace. Uh, this is actually one of the questions I have for you if we have mm-hmm. uh, time later about yeah. uh, the meanness of the God in the Old Testament. Yeah. Okay. So my seventh one, we don't have to discuss it because it's sort of the same idea, but the Old Testament teaches salvation by works and the New Testament teaches salvation by grace. So I think that one kind of follows on the law, Old Testament, grace, New Testament idea. And the new perspectives in Paul within Judaism have kind of uh, done a lot of work to get rid of that one as well. Yeah. All right. Uh, This from Corby Amos, given King David's immense personal failures, uh, bad parent, concubines, murder, uh, all that stuff. Why did God consider him a man after God's own heart? Um, I, I don't know. If, I feel like that's a softball question. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, yeah. Um, it, it is crazy. I have a, a spreadsheet that I make for my students uh, with Deuteronomy 17, the requirements for the future kings. And then mm-hmm. I put Saul, David, and Solomon up there. And guess what? Only Saul... Uh, basically keeps the requirements for future uh, kings, according to Deuteronomy 17. Mm. And David and Solomon egregiously violate every single uh, bit of them. Uh, And in fact, you could almost say Samuel's uh, warning to the people about the future king of Israel was about David um, first and then Solomon second, Uh, and and not Saul. So the story by the numbers, you know, if we had their resumes or CVs in front of us, we'd say, oh, Saul wins, definitely. but the story is intent on uh, showing the establishment of the kingdom through David, which is, I would say, the, the secret sauce here. I, I do say, like, look, above all things, and you can feel free to disagree with me or, or, or show me um, where I've missed something here. But uh, the story is very clear. When David is in a bind, he always uh, turns to God to seek, seek his, uh, his input, even through the casting of lots and Ouija technology. Um, but he always turns towards God. Um, even when he does horrible, horrible things. Um, 
But uh, where you can't say that about Saul, when Saul gets in a bind, uh, he turns into his own sacrificial, this weird self-sacrificial system that he sets up. When Solomon's in a bind, he sets up altars to other gods on the hill east, you know, the Mount of Olives, the hill east of, uh, of Jerusalem. So that one defining feature apparently takes him a long way. And I, I hesitate in saying that because evangelicals have taken that one defining feature yeah. of, of, to take it to mean this kind of... So basically, as long as my heart's in the right place, you know, better to ask forgiveness than permission kind of mentality. And yeah. uh, Paul slams down his fist and says, Ude uh, may, right, uh, may it never be, right? Yeah. No, that's good. And, and I think the, the phrase comes, so the phrase appears in 1 Samuel 13, 14, when God's disappointed with Saul and is going to pick and has chosen another king. And at that point, you know, this is prior to David doing all that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is, I've chosen a man according to my heart. So that phrase, ish um, kilvabo, was mm-hmm. is, I think, translated, a man who will do my will. Yeah. And, and I think we can't overplay the phrase to, to some sort of grand blanket endorsement of all of David's life. Dear He's saying, Lord, I, yeah, yeah, I, I've turned to find someone who will do what I ask, who will shepherd my people Israel. I think that's the specific thing that God called is, uh, David to do, and he does, uh, especially at the beginning. And, and I so, think, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I just think that we can't take that and extend it to David's whole life because the story itself is very clear that David wanders from. God's heart in many circumstances, but you're right. He always, he always turns back. And heart there, we, I, I just what everybody already knows is lev here is often, most often used to talk about the kind of volition, the center of your thinking, yeah. reason, and volition. Not, not that he has some sentimental. So I've heard sometimes yeah. worship leaders gone wrong, you know, talking yeah. about, well, he just has this affectionate love for God as for Jonathan mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, clearly the Psalms indicate something like that is going on, but that's not in any way all that's going on. Yeah. Yeah, good. All right. Let's move on to Lindsay Stepan. And I hope I pronounce that right. And she asked, the Torah describes Yahweh as holy so that sin cannot be in his presence. Yet he sends his son himself into the world of sin. John 3.16 explains God that Yahweh loved the world as it was. Uh, So do we as Christians just hold those two things in paradox? You didn't read the last of that question. Uh, I oh, like, like free will versus predestination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So there, there's a lot in this question and, yes. and a few things I might want to even challenge within the question. Okay. Itself. Okay, good. I was going to challenge yeah. the first part of the question. So, yeah. So the, first of all, this idea that Yahweh as holy cannot be in sin, cannot be in his presence. Well, yeah. Yahweh as holy God dwelled r- smack dab in the middle of Israel. And mm-hmm. so, while there's something true in the idea that it, it became very dangerous if you were in a state of ritual impurity uh, or, you know, arguably moral impurity, especially ritual impurity, come into God's yeah. presence. Okay. So there, there, there's something to that idea. But I, I like the example of Isaiah 6. So there you have mm-hmm. Isaiah standing in the, at, at the threshold of the temple. He sees a vision of the glory and holiness of God. And he's like, oh man, I'm done for. And and what does God do to that sinner in his presence? He had he sends one of his seraphim to take a coal from the altar and atone for Isaiah's sin. So 
So Which is the, a temple scene, by the way. Yeah, right? exactly. So so the way that God's holiness interacts with sin, I think, isn't just simply that it, oh, sin can't be in his presence. So God right. exists it, solely apart from Israel. And the second thing I'd say is that God, as holy, invites Israel into his holiness. And he mm-hmm. says, be holy as I'm holy. So the very thing that might set him apart from them, his holiness, is the thing that he invites them into. Yep. Preach it. Uh, yeah, I think uh, th- this kind of caricature that it's like the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, where God's holiness, <laughs> it just can't, you know, it's just going to wax melt. Yeah, uh, anything yeah. that's, I understand the sentiment, and there's clearly texts that warn you that you should be poop your pants afraid of God's physical presence <laughs> uh, on the throne in the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Just ask us. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the disregard for uh, God's presence at that point seems to have led to his death. The um, Yeah, but uh, the remarkable thing continuing on in Isaiah, right, is Emmanuel. Um, mm. and, uh, that, but Emmanuel is not Jesus. It's, it, it's, it's also Yahweh in the presence of Israel as well, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Emmanuel is an expansion of the project, obviously, in some ways that probably would not have been anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, whether God loved the world as the way it was or is, I mean, there's lots of, I come from the Reformed tradition, so there's lots of ways in which they deal with the, the way the world is versus the way it were, will, will be, right? Mm. Uh, the already, not yet. Um, and I, I do love the caricature, you know, that Jesus loves everybody where they're at, which I think actually has some general truthiness to it. Um, but that in no way defines God's physical relationship to the world and sin, I don't think. Yeah. Okay. I, I think there's a lot more we could say there, but let's keep moving. Yeah. What? Uh, so, from the theology book club, uh, would would enjoy hearing which ideas in biblical studies that we think need to die. Flip mm. the script. So we ask this of our guests: What do we think yeah. need to die? It's a great question. I think um, theology and Bible-driven podcasts have reached their max. Right? They uh, <laughs> they peaked in the late '90s, and they just keep on trying. So that's pretty sad. <laughs> To watch that droll out <laughs> over years. What do you think? Oh, I, th- the one I put down, and I hate I hate to reduce it down to one because I think a lot needs to die. Is the idea that, and this is maybe speaking more to, uh, well, obviously speaking more to Christians, but certain Christians who who uh, approach the Old Testament Christologically. So that the idea that the value of the Old Testament is a function of its ability to point to Christ. Oh yeah. And, and I think I call this a ruthlessly Christocentric reading of scripture. And Soft Marcionism, I think, is the word you were looking for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, so everything is subordinated in a very straightforward way to Jesus. All right, so you've got David and Goliath in the Old Testament. You imagine David's a type of Christ and Goliath is sin and death. And Jesus is the champion of our faith who slays the enemy. And... Or if you want to get really weird, you could talk about the way that the tribes were arranged in the shape of a cross around the tabernacle. Ooh, oh, I have not heard that one. <laughs> I've heard that. I heard that growing up. Or uh, Rahab's thread, the 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 scarlet the, the scarlet scored, uh, yeah. the scarlet cord is the blood <laughs> right. of Jesus, right? Yeah, and and, and the problem with the, those approaches, is they don't tell you anything about Jesus that you didn't already know, mm. right? Oh, so, that's so a it's, good point. It's, it's simply. Uh, affirming what you already know from the New Testament or already assume from the New Testament. And I think it sucks the revelatory value out of the Old Testament. I could go on about yeah. that one, but that's uh, my... That's a good, that's a great that's, way to put it. Uh, yeah. I have one. Uh, I, I, I'm cheating because 
I was on this show and I got asked this question, but I have a different one. Um, yeah. That uh, and it's actually what needs to die. It's actually what needs to be either resuscitated or maybe brought into existence. Um, mm. I th- I think biblical scholars just need to do a lot more work on methodology, and defining uh, by what rights they have to to say that they understood something. Uh, how are they carving out? You know, Oklahoma. They say uh, you only mark off the field you're willing to hoe, right, or the field mm-hmm. you're willing to plow. Mm-hmm. Um, and really. Uh, people being more specific. I think it's kind of a token chapter at the beginning of a lot of dissertations uh, and a, a token page at the beginning of a lot of mo- monographs. Here's what I'm doing. Um, but I think uh, we could stand a, a thoroughgoing review. Even if we still end up in our clubs where we're practicing various methodologies, uh, but being clear about what we're doing uh, for our own sake, uh, if, yeah. if not others. Yeah. So, so do you think that, do, are you always working within certain methodological confine, uh, uh, confines when you're doing your work? Like, I don't always think in those terms, so maybe I need help with this. I, because I do, I, I worked a lot on this philosophy in the Hebrew Bible stuff, and mm-hmm. I'm constantly having to justify that to people. Um, yeah. I, I guess maybe I thought about it a lot more than others. Sure. But um, no, I actually set up criteria by which I choose whether I can include a passage or a reading into mm-hmm. an idea, into a thesis and exclude. So I like have a, mm-hmm. you know, signal detection theory of hits, misses, correct rejections and false positives. Um, <laughs> and, and it's not, it's, it's cruder than signal detection, but it's, yeah. it's basically for my own sake that I can say, okay, I, I know I'm not making this up. Um, yeah. and, and it gets kind of comes back to the falsifiability thing. Uh, if at the end of the day, you can't say why this is so and why other things that look like it aren't necessarily the case. Um, then I don't know how we have any confidence in our readings. And I think biblical scholars should do that. I think just normal people of faith who take mm. these texts seriously should also be doing that. Mm. Um, you, you don't need to be a scholar to have that kind of mentality. I've known many plumbers and carpenters who actually are excellent readers of Scripture, scripture yeah. on this ground. Yeah. So it's something that we should all be doing and um, sharpening each other on this and challenging each other a little bit more on yeah. this. No, that's good. You know, in supervising MA theses, Mm-hmm. One of the things I come across the most is not justifying the choice of texts that are used in yes. in a given study. So why have you selected these three texts from these three books to pursue your study? If it's just because they support your thesis, then right. you haven't you haven't done enough work yet. So I think that's maybe an example. Or uh, yeah, I'm starting to supervise PhD theses now, and the uh, you know the. Well, because this these passages have the most concentrated use of this word in them, and I'm like, mm. okay, well, that's mm. that's actually that piques my interest, but that's not a reason. Uh, right. That's only a reason to pique our interest. So. Okay, uh, real quick, is Jesus? So there was one question. I don't have the the exact question in front of me, but did Paul think Jesus was going to return in one generation? Was the was the essence of it? Uh, should we count to three and then say what we think? Yes or no? Uh, Sure. Although mine's like depends on when you're talking about in his life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I think I just gave mine away. All right. What do you think? Let's, why don't you just give yours? One, two, <laughs> three. Yes. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think. I think. Like from First Thessalonians, it seems like it. Yes. Yeah. That's where I would go and say. And, yep. Yep. I, I, although you know, as he goes to Rome. It's uh, a little bit harder to tell what's going on in his mind, and uh, I don't think I don't want to pretend I'm going to psychologize him that much. 
on this front where, where he's uh, not necessarily speaking verbosely. So mm. yeah, that was it's, a, it, it's, it's a great question because it's a, that was a huge issue in the early church that I find most Christians are shocked when they find this out about historical right. theology that, uh, uh, that, that, uh, people were really struggling to explain why Christ didn't return. And I, mm. it's funny to me that more Christians don't, aren't struggling with that question. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, that if it was an issue that Paul wrestled with early on in his ministry, that he, that it, it's not a bigger deal later on. Yeah. Maybe he just got older and, you know, bigger fish to fry. And <laughs> Like what bigger fish is there to fry? <laughs> <laughs> that, well, you know, he has this kind of like, you know, as I tell my students, he teaches about predestination, whatever you think is going on with predestination. He certainly talks about it very openly and doggedly. Hmm. Um, and yet, what does that compel him to do? To go to the farthest ends of the earth uh, to spread the good news uh, as yeah. far as he can. Um, yeah. So there's this kind of like, even even if you think that is logically incompatible, um, he thought there was just work to be done. So, okay, sure. Jesus is coming back. Yeah, like a bumper sticker I saw once. Uh, Jesus is returning, so look busy, right? Um, and uh, <laughs> that seems to be Paul's mentality, right? That uh, there's work to be done, you know. Yeah, who cares exactly. whether he's coming tomorrow or 10 days? There's work to be done. So yeah, I like, wish more Christians had that, had that mentality, including myself. Mm, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for that reformed moment, Drew. So, <laughs> um, okay. So, we're, do we have any questions for each other? You said you had one for me about violence in the Old Testament. Uh, yeah, I think my big question for you is: I was talking to somebody um, a week or two ago, and they basically believe that God was a pacifist and that God doesn't do violence and He never intends to, and uh, and or that 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 is all subsumed somehow by the reconciliation of Jesus. That all the violence is put on Him at the cross, and there is no more violence to be had, and. I said, and I suggested that you should go back and read the gospel, uh, gospels again, and how much Jesus talks about the violence that remains, and that it's Jesus Himself who's going to be doing that violence. Um, and he he just went to Paul at that point and said, "Why well, take a Pauline reading on those things?" Mm. So. Yeah, I don't know when we're releasing this episode, but Matt and I interviewed Greg Boyd on his book, "The Crucifixion oh, of the yeah. Warrior God," and 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 that's essentially Greg's view in a. In a way that I haven't quite heard it put before, uh, Greg's Greg's view is is probably more extreme than that. That mm. in the Old Testament we see the misrepresentation of God by Israel that God willingly endures. He endures that mis misrepresentation, and that that willingness of God to endure misrepresentation is cruciform in the sense that Jesus takes our sins on Him. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm so, glad you guys interviewed him on that one. Yeah. It, I mean, it, and that's in 1400 pages. So, so there's a lot more to it, but I, I would say that, no, I don't, I don't think I don't take a pacifist reading of the Bible in the sense that I don't think that pacifism is what Christians are always everywhere all the time called to. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm happy. I'm really glad there are pacifists in the church though. Yes, me too. Um, and I count myself uh, as a pacifist, uh, uh, a modified pacifist. So I, I believe yeah. whenever possible, uh, yeah. we should avoid violence at almost almost all costs. Yeah. And, and I think in a way, th this is going to put, I'm going to put this crudely, so it's not 100% true. But if as a Christian, you don't go through a pacifist phase at some point, then mm. then I think like maybe you're not reading the, the Gospels closely enough. <laughs> Yeah, um, you're not letting them read you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't think you need to stay there. Uh, I, I I haven't stayed there, so 
obviously other people don't need to. Um, but but I think I think pacifists are actually play a very critical role in the church. Yeah. In, 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 in constantly putting a question mark over the willingness of Christians, the, the, the readiness of Christians to too willingly endorse and, and support military action. Um, oh, yeah. But, but yeah. in terms of, I think in terms of violence in the Old Testament, I, I want to define violence in a specific way. So when you talk, when you use the word violence, you're using morally charged language. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about immoral killing. And so I think the Bible is very careful never to attribute Hamas, which is a more mm-hmm. immoral killing to God. And, and so while God engages in actions that we would consider violent as a sort of second order observation, from, from the writer's perspective, God is not engaging in Hamas, which is yeah. immoral killing. So that's, I think that's an important thing to say, even though that doesn't help us deal with the angst around the slaughter of the Canaanites. Um, yeah. So, so I, and then when you get into the details of any given text, I think you, you, you kind of have to take it on a text by text basis. I don't think there's one answer to dealing with those violent texts in the Old Testament, but I, I've got, uh, if anyone's interested, I wrote a six-part blog series on on Joshua and violence, on our on the blog that I sometimes post on. It's called Theological Miscellany, and that that gets into my sort of reflections on violence in Joshua, and and I tried to be very nuanced in that. But at the end of the day, I think there's some tension I live with, with, and I think it's important to let the text push back on us as readers, but also to ask our hard questions of the text, and sometimes that yields insights that we. We wouldn't have had if we didn't if we didn't question the surface reading of the text from mm-hmm. the perspective of Jesus. And so I don't think I don't go with Greg to say that because Jesus willingly accepts the violence of his enemies, it doesn't retaliate on the cross, that we have to read that back into the Old Testament. But I do think that that at least causes us to rethink some texts in the Old Testament and, and it actually yields good insights. Yeah. I think also it's it's a very it's a very dangerous question for most people who are who are in the West who are challenged by the issue of violence in the Bible, people mm-hmm. who basically live in worlds where violence is almost entirely removed from their daily life. Um, yeah. That there there are essentially no visceral threats to them in the way that most of the people throughout history have lived, and especially um, the people in the ancient Near East. Yeah. And uh, and so I think um, you know my move into pacifism came out of combat experiences. Mm. Um, and then, but then having to think beyond those that, okay, that's not how the world is. It's just a way in the, which the world can be. So, uh, so now how you, do we think about these things more fully? Can you talk about that a little more? Which part? Well, just your, the, your move into that and your reflections on your own combat experience. Well, yeah, I think, I, I, I don't think I actually have thought it through entirely. And I, and I actually look forward to reading, I think you're going to put out a book on this topic, which I would, yeah. I'm looking forward to reading as well. But um, I think, uh, you know, when you see, see people treating each other as horribly as humans can possibly treat each other uh, physically, um, it, it, you know, when I th- think of things of Jericho or the indictments of the people of Canaan in uh, Leviticus, uh, I think there is a lack of moral imagination. I mean that in the deleterious sense. Um, 
of how bad this would actually be if the, if the crimes that are being uh, judged against these people are actually happening in mm. you know across society and not just singular singular instances as we think of them in the West as there's this one serial killer, this one uh, rapist, yeah. this one person who does these bad things, but seeing these as systemic and endemic in an entire culture, mm. um, and, and you know there's a, military culture and combat can turned to morgue humor. And, and I think in, I worked with other militaries uh, that didn't necessarily have the, um, I don't, I don't even know what you would call it. Maybe the moral guilt that Americans mm-hmm. typically have. Um, and so they're a little, little bit quicker and more willing to go further physically with violence than I would be willing to. <laughs> That's coming from a former skinhead, right? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think it's just that knowing what people are, are capable of uh, and, and, and like, I don't want my kids to know that stuff, right? Mm. I, I actually don't know how to deal with this. I, I wish my kids didn't have to see it. I think living in New York City and, you know, riding the subway, you get a little, you, you know, your kids get to see a taste of the real world um, sometimes in ways which they might if you uh, are in suburbia. Yeah. But um, it's, it's that, that's the dilemma I live with is I think people, yeah. if, they, if they saw these things and understood them, uh, it would at least mitigate the way they think about violence in the Bible. Uh, but I don't want people to have to see these things. Uh, yeah. I don't think that's the only answer. And I just haven't gotten to where, where the crossover is, where we can work it out. So, mm. so I enjoin people for help. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should do an episode on violence in the Bible. I think that'd be good yeah. to, to talk through that in a little more detail. Absolutely. Okay, well, it looks like uh, we are way over time, and uh, if you have stuck it out this far in the episode, we thank you for listening to Matt, L, and I blethering uh, about these various topics. Uh, I'm sure you have more questions for a future Q&A that we will certainly drag Matt Bates and possibly any other people we can Skype in on those uh, calls. <laughs> for now, that's all we have for this week. Thank you for listening to OnScript. I am Drew Johnson in Israel. And this is Matt Lynch in Cheltenham, England. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study.